Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Let us pray. Living God, on this most holy day, we commit ourselves once again to do that which Easter compels, to celebrate new and abundant life today. Amen. And please be seated. Christ is risen. risen That's pretty good, better than first service. Christ is risen. risen Christ is risen. risen Amen. Amen, amen. And what exactly does that mean? Christ has risen, and yet Ukraine is under siege. COVID continues to raise its sickly head. Climate change has us all on edge. And we religious people, probably more than most people in the world, find ourselves feeling bad about ourselves in a world that feels increasingly scarce. So Christ has risen. So what? you've been at Pearl for a few years, you'll recall that we like to emphasize over and over that the season of Easter lasts longer than Lent. Lent is 40 days, Easter is 50 days. That is to say, life outlasts death in the Christian calendar. And yet, I want to ask, so what? Ukraine is under siege, COVID continues to raise its sickly head, climate change has us all on edge, and we religious people, more than most people, too often feel bad about ourselves in a world that feels increasingly scarce. Easter lasts longer than Lent, so what? Christ is risen, so what? What does it mean for us today, 2,000 years later? Well, the season of Easter and the Gospel of John are both celebrations of life. In his attempt to celebrate life, John intentionally mimics the creation account of Genesis. However, rather than seven days of creation, which conclude with God resting in a garden, in John, seven miracles are followed by a resurrected Jesus who meets and talks to a woman in a garden. The imagery of Jesus and Mary, or maybe we could say the new Adam and new Eve in a garden is an intentional picture of new life in a new world that slowly builds in John's gospel, not creation by creation, but miracle by miracle. And so throughout the season of Easter, this sermon series is titled New Creations. We'll be in it throughout the season of Easter, and it's intentional, going to be intentional to explore the goodness of Jesus' life in this world, one miracle at a time. And it's through John's seven miracles that we're offered a window into resurrected life. And this resurrected life, well, according to Jesus, it's near. The language that he uses is to say that it's at hand. In some way, it's, it's as though he's saying it is so accessible, this resurrected life. It's so near that you could almost reach out and touch it with your own finger. 
On this first Sunday of Easter, we're going to consider the first miracle found in the first 11 verses of John chapter 2, which we heard read earlier in our service. Imagine with me for a moment that you're a practicing Jew living 2,000 years ago. Whenever you enter a home, visible for everyone to see, there is a large stone jar that can hold about 20 to 30 gallons of water. It's an important jar in your life as a Jew. In fact, it's a jar that's used for ceremonial washing. And so before every meal, at least three times a day, you go to this jar and you use it to wash yourself. But it's more than just physical washing. This jar is a ceremonial jar, which, which is to say that the water from this jar is supposed to cleanse you not just physically, but somehow spiritually. It's a spiritual cleansing found in this jar. As tradition has it, these jars were also used to wash everything that you cook with and eat with. Again, not just for physical cleansing, but for spiritual cleansing. And you, as a good practicing Jew, are around these jars a lot. They are a constant reminder that you are dirty and in need of being made clean. At meals, at parties, even at weddings. And I suppose that, as a practicing Jew, you're grateful for the jars because you want to need that cleansing. But I also suppose, as a practicing Jew, that the jars get you thinking of something better in the future down the road. For you've lived your whole life going to synagogue, and you've heard passages being read day after day, week after week, from the book of Isaiah, which promised that one day a Messiah is going to come. And on that day, when the Messiah arrives, there will be an incredible wedding. A wedding. Hold that in your mind. And there will be a great banquet feast. Hold that in your mind. And Isaiah tells us in that day when the Messiah comes, wine will flow like water because scarcity will be replaced by plenty. And I also suppose that maybe, just maybe, as a practicing Jew, that you imagine on that day when Messiah does come that there won't be any more need for ceremonial jars for purification sitting at every meal and party and wedding that you attend, reminding that you are dirty and in need of being made clean. Wouldn't that be an incredible day? From John chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples were in Cana at a wedding, but the wine gave out. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said, what concern of that is to you or to me. My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, standing there, there were six stone water jars for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said, get those jars with the water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, the steward called the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you've kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed him. This story, I think, for religious people is a total mind-bender. I mean, this is so good. Key to the story is verse 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him, which must cause us to ask how? How did Jesus reveal his glory in this story? Well, you're a practicing Jew living about 2,000 years ago. You've been following Jesus around for a few weeks now, and this is what you see, a wedding banquet during which ceremonial washing jars filled with water get turned into wine. Jesus revealed his glory. Stone jars filled with water used for cleansing, transfixed into wine, becoming the source, the very source of Jesus' followers' celebration. And verse 11 tells us his disciples believed in him. Which makes me want to ask, should we celebrate? Is this a story to be celebrated? I mean, think critically about the story. In verse 10, the steward praises the bridegroom for bringing out the good wine after everyone has already had too much to drink. I mean, this was the tradition. The cheap wine was supposed to come after everyone had had too much to drink. In fact, they'd had so much to drink that they got to the point where they could no longer distinguish between like wine that you get at like the, I don't know, the, the winery, right, out in Dundee, or the cheap wine that you get at Trader Joe's for $3, right? That's a, you get to drink a lot of wine when you can't discern between those two kinds of wine. <laughs> and it's here in this very moment at the wedding that Jesus works his miracle, which is more wine, better wine. And so I want to ask, what is Jesus doing with all of that wine? I mean, there are so many less dangerous and more safe ways to reveal his glory than through the use of wine at a party after everyone has had too much to drink. Consider this. According to the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, alcohol is the most commonly used addictive substance in the United States. 17.6 million people, or one in every 12 adults, suffer from alcohol abuse. More than half of all adults have a family history of alcoholism or problem drinking. What is Jesus doing? Why is he turning water into wine? He could have used this as an opportunity to preach his first sermon, a manifesto against drunkenness. He could have made a new law, no fermentation. Can you see Jesus with a little sign? Keep grapes, grapes. Just walking around, it would have been so great. Religious people love signs like that. And yet it's here, grapes in the vineyard, fermentation in the winery, and people who drink too much wine in the world. And so we religious people sit in need of cleansing water found in stone jars. Oh, but why stop with alcohol? What about possessions? Consumption statistics from World Watch Institute tell us there are now more than 1.7 billion members of the consumer class. The amount spent on goods and services at the household level topped 20 trillion in 2000, a fourfold increase over 1960. The UN projects that the world population will increase by 41% in 2050 to 8.9 billion people. This surge in human numbers threatens to offset any savings in resource use from approved efficiency. What is Jesus doing? Why is he turning water into wine? He could have used this as an opportunity to preach his first sermon, a manifesto against consumption. He could have made a law, no stuff, no more stuff. I mean, Jesus is the revelation of God. He could have done away with stuff altogether. Yet it's here, raw materials in the earth, possessions in the stores, consumers in the world. And so many of us religious people sit here feeling in need of cleansing water found in stone jars. 
Will I stop with alcohol and possessions? We're on a roll. What about sex? It's Easter. Let's talk about sex. (laughs) Sex statistics from LiveScience.org. At least 50% of sexually active adults contract some kind of HPV infection at some point in their lives. Global porn revenues estimated $20 billion a year. Human trafficking in the United States alone generates $9.5 billion annually. What is Jesus doing? Why is he wasting time turning water into wine? He could have used this as an opportunity to preach his first sermon, a manifesto against sex. He could have made a law, no sex, and he could have walked around with a sign singing it before everyone in Palestine. And yet it's here, sex organs in our bodies, people all around, possible sexual partners and sexual humans everywhere. And so here, many of us religious people sit in need of cleansing water found in stone jars. But can you see where this is going? Like, take away the sex organs for sex, and take away all of the materials for possessions, and take away all of the grapes for alcohol. Take away all creative choice and all agency, and we won't need to sit here in need of cleansing water found in stone jars. But take it all away, and we wouldn't be alive, would we? We would be like the living dead. We wouldn't be sitting here living, filled with longings and hunger pains and thirsts and dreams and hopes, right? The stuff of life. So what is to be done? Well, one answer is that which we've just considered. It's a very religious solution. Just cut it all out. Cut out life, cut out wine and consumption and sex. Just, just cut it out and maybe even do what some of the best mystics have done, right? Build stone buildings to barricade yourself from the world. And if you're really spiritual, live life in a perpetual season of Lent in which you pray and kneel and refrain from foolish things, human things, like laughter and food and sex. And while we're at it, thinking of laughter and food and sex, perhaps we should just avoid weddings altogether. For certainly any good wedding is a doorway into more laughter and more food and more sex. I mean, at least I hope it is. (laughs) And as helpful as this may appear, and as often as some of us have attempted this way forward, I find it very interesting that Jesus chose a different way. Consider this. In John chapter 2, we're told that there are six stone jars, which are 20 to 30 gallons each. So let's just keep it conservative and say each stone jar was 20 gallons. Little math, geek out, here we go. There are 750 milliliters in a bottle of wine, 3,785 milliliters in one gallon. 3,785 divided by 750 is a little over five bottles of wine per gallon. 20 gallons times six stone jars equals 120 gallons. 120 gallons times five bottles of wine per gallon equals 600 bottles of wine. Jesus. (laughs) That is so much wine. Now, math's not my thing, so you may want to check what I've just said. Everybody send uh, Chuck a text. But let there make be no mistake, whether I'm right or wrong, off a little bit in the numbers, Jesus made almost literally a ton A ton of wine. What is going on here? Who remembers when COVID first began and toilet paper was scarce? (laughs) Right? We laugh now because it's two years later and it was so long ago. But remember, right? Uh, The NBA had just shut down. COVID was starting to rise. Trump said we'll be back to normal by Easter. And there was no toilet paper on the shelves. (laughs) And we were kind of freaking out, weren't we? 
I mean, go back to that moment, right? It's different now, but go back to that moment and remember your heart. Reflect on your heart in scarcity. A little afraid, perhaps a little worried. Practically speaking, how about a little hopeful? Like, if I find toilet paper on a shelf at a store, I'm going to fill my youngest child's room to the ceiling. Right? Scarcity has a weird way of turning our hearts. I mean, to be clear, you didn't need a whole bunch of toilet paper. As usual, you only needed enough for those moments when you needed it. It's really not that much in the moment. And yet that moment of scarcity did something. It turned something. And although we'd gone our entire lives without worrying about finding toilet paper at the store, we suddenly felt as though we'd never find toilet paper again. Afraid, worried, quickly shriveling hearts. I must have more now which sounds very familiar to Jesus' mom in John chapter 2, doesn't it? She finds out that there's no wine left, and she comes to Jesus almost declaring, almost crying, there is no more wine. We're out. It's gone. What are we to do? And I think we know exactly how Mary is feeling. It's how we all feel when there's no toilet paper at the store. It's how we all feel when there's one small piece of cheese left on the cheese plate at that party and everybody's circling, but nobody wants to take it. (laughs) It's how we feel when that person that we were so connected to begins to grow distant. It's how we feel after 48, 50, 60 months of COVID in which everything feels like it's shrinking and hardening and closing up. Pearl, we've had a few years now that have roused our sense of scarcity like never before, like never before in our lifetimes. And it's into this sense of scarcity that Jesus does something astonishing. He resurrects abundance. That's what he does. He resurrects a perspective of abundance. Now, I don't know when the last time you looked up the word abundance. I looked it up a few days ago. It's defined as a very large quantity of something. (laughs) How good is that? A very large quantity of something, like wine, like resources, like intimacy, like breath. Pearl Church, Easter lasts longer than Lent, so what? Christ is risen, so what? Well, what if we humans desperately need more Easter than Lent? What if it's just true? What if we humans desperately need more resurrection than death? What if that's just true? Mike, Mike, all we've known for the past few years is Lent and death and Lent and death, and and you're right. You're absolutely right. But let us ponder this question. How does your heart feel in the midst of all of this Lent and death? How have you felt over the last several months? Because my heart feels tired and afraid. And those kinds of feelings make me want to grab hold of everything that matters so tightly that I risk squeezing the life out of it. But is that how we want to live? Well, it's certainly a way to live, but it's not resurrected living. And so in this first miracle story in John, Jesus enters into his mom's scarcity and he resurrects vision for a different kind of world. It's a world of abundance. A world of abundance. 
It is no mistake that the great religions, Easter in Christianity, Ramadan in Islam, Passover in Judaism, all happen during the season of spring where no matter what is going on in the world, life bursts forth. The ivy turns green. The trees begin to bud. The flowers begin to blossom. It is a season for us to celebrate. It's 50 days 50 days of Easter, no matter what is going on in our lives, to pay particular notice not to the scarcity, but to the abundance. The abundance. And even in moments of scarcity, there's the abundance of breath, for we live. And to be clear, it's not the kind of abundance that turns us into gluttons, which is a very religious fear, but rather it's a perspective on abundance like spring, like breath, that cannot be overly consumed for we can only imbibe one moment at a time. Pearl Church, the season of Easter begins today. And the resurrected Jesus is attending our ceremonies of scarcity, entering into our meals and entering into our weddings and entering into our feasts and even entering into our wine, declaring, do this, consume this, enjoy this in remembrance of me. Until suddenly meals and weddings and feasts and wine become tastes of a kingdom like heaven, which is at hand, For you see, Lent is past and Easter is here. May we drink deeply Christ. May we live fully Christ. May we celebrate fervently Christ. And in every celebration, meal, moment, and yes, breath, let us declare with our whole hearts, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And our risen Lord is breaking open all things, even us. Let us pray. Living God, on this most holy day, we commit ourselves once again to do that which Easter compels, to celebrate new and abundant life today. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Mm